If you have your Bibles today, please open to 1 John chapter 4. We are going to be engaging in the Scriptures today, so I hope you have your Bibles with you. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, as we continue to make our way through John's first epistle. 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 12. If you are able, please stand and honor the reading of God's holy word. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected. In us. Pray with me, please. Father, remove every distraction from this place. We ask physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally that we might focus upon your word. May we worship you through the preaching of your word today. Teach us, Father, mold us, shape us into your image. And we ask it if there is one here today who doesn't know Jesus, may they see the love of God in Christ. May they see what Christ has done for them and may they come to know you as Savior. We ask all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Please be seated. As your pastor, one of the things that I always want to teach you is this. Theology drives practice. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, theology is simply the study of God. It's what we know about God. Practice is the way we live our lives, the way we relate to other people within this world. So when we say theology drives practice, what we mean is, is what we know about God determines the way we live our lives with other people. Now, being a math guy, I'm going to put it in some geometric a geometric fashion here. I also say it this way. Our vertical relationship drives our horizontal relationship. And you can probably see what I mean by that. Vertical relationship is God's relationship with me. As he relates to me vertically, the Bible says that should determine how I live horizontally. In other words, my relationship to other people in this world, horizontal, me and others. So we say it this way, theology drives practice, vertical drives horizontal, or what we know about God determines the way we live our lives. Now you might say, Adam, where do you get that? Where do you see that in the scriptures? Let me start by giving you two examples, and in just a moment we're going to look at a third in great detail. But think about this with me, the Ten Commandments. 
Have you ever thought about the Ten Commandments in a vertical and horizontal fashion or a theology practice fashion? Think about it this way. The first four commandments have to do with what? God and us. God and us. Think about it. Have no other gods before me. Don't make idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In the first four commandments, God is speaking to man about God's relationship with man, that vertical relationship. And before God ever gets to any sort of practice or horizontal relationship, he says, listen to these first four. These first four have to be right in your life first before I can give you the last six. Because the last six we know are horizontal relationships. How man relates to other men, right? Honor your father and your mother. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. That's the way we deal with each other in life. That's our practice. So we see the Ten Commandments are written in a theology drives practice way. The vertical first, then the horizontal. Here's another example. We'll put this verse on the screen. This is Ephesians 4.32. The Apostle Paul is writing. He says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So what's the topic? It's forgiveness. Have you ever had a hard time forgiving someone? I think we all have. If we... You know, it, 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 we're honest with ourselves. We admit that. We've all had a hard time forgiving someone, maybe for something that they have done to us. Well, the Bible speaks to that issue. And it tells us as Christians, when there's an issue between us and other people, and a, a horizontal issue, the Bible reminds us, don't think horizontally first. Take a step back and think vertically. Think back, Christian, to how much God has forgiven us. Think back to the depth of depravity that we have, the depth of sin that we have, and let's recognize how much love and grace and mercy God has poured out on us vertically in the person of Jesus Christ, that He did all of that to forgive our sins. And when we understand our vertical relationship that Christ has forgiven us, that right there is going to enable us to forgive other people. You see it in the text. Forgive others just as in Christ God forgave you. Theology drives practice. What you know about God determines the way you live. Vertical drives horizontal. What about today? You see, just as the Ten Commandments and forgiveness taught us that theology drives practice. Today, the Apostle John, in this text, he teaches us the exact same lesson, just with a different topic. And today, it's the topic of love. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. When John writes this epistle, did you know that in five chapters he uses the verb love, to love, 28 times? 
He uses the noun love 18 times. He even begins this text with the word beloved. He's talking to his flock. And he wants to teach them that theology drives practice, that vertical drives horizontal. So that's the way our text breaks down today. Two simple points. The first one is this. The first one is our vertical relationship, the theology of love. How has God loved us? And then secondly, finally, the last point, the horizontal relationship, the practice of love, the way we should love other people. But let's first look at that first point, the vertical relationship, the theology of love. How does God love us to do that? Let's look back at verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me one more time. From the Word of God, it says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So we think about that verse. Let's first of all think about what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that God simply loves his creation. It doesn't simply say that God is just full of love. It says that God is love. That in his being, in his very essence, God is love. Let me take you back in time. I mean before God created space and time. The Bible says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That before God created, what was there? There was the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity. And the Bible teaches us that they were in this communion of love, that they were in relationship with themselves Dr. Kelly would always say it this way. He would say, for God to be is for God to be in relationship with himself. What that means is this, is that the three persons of the Trinity had this wonderful relationship. They knew each other, that the Father loved the Son and the Spirit. The Son loved the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit loved the Father and loved the Son. And there was this beautiful communion of love even before God created. Now, I'm going to stop right there with that. In just a moment, I'm going to come back to that right there. So hold on to that. But let's keep moving forward to what else this text says. It, first of all, says God is love. But now it says God pursues man in his love. Look at verse 10. We're going to walk through some of these verses line by line. Here's what it says. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. According to this text, it wasn't man that pursued God. It was God that pursued man. The phrase says, not that we loved God but that God loved us. Do you know what the Bible says about this? It says that no man on his own initiative will ever seek God. That's what Romans 3 says. Romans 1 says this, when man is confronted with the truth about God, he takes that truth and he pushes it down. He suppresses it in his own unrighteousness. He doesn't voluntarily seek God. He pushes God away. 
But rather this text says that He loved us. Not that we loved God, but what? He loved us. And it's time that when we read a verse like this, that we all step back and say, let's look who has the initiative here. It's God. It's God who has the initiative to love us. It does not say that we loved, it does not say that he loved us because we loved him. But it says that he loved us even when we were sinners. Romans 5, 8 says this. God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When I say the lost chapter, what chapter of the Bible do you think of? Anyone know? The lost chapter. It's Luke 15. I call Luke 15 the lost chapter. Why? Because in one chapter you have a lost coin, you have a lost son, and you have a lost sheep. Jesus in Luke 15 talks about that which was lost. Let's talk about that last one. The lost sheep. There's a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, but one of them gets lost. And what does he do? The 99 are left in the pen. And that shepherd goes out, doesn't he? And he pursues his lost sheep. And that shepherd searches until he finds him. Do you know why? Because in God's mind, 99 is not enough. He wants them all. And Jesus goes out and searches till he finds his lost sheep. And the Bible says once he finds them, that shepherd puts that sheep on his shoulders and carries him back. Why? Because he loves that sheep. In fact, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life for my sheep. And Jesus wants us to see how the shepherd pursues his sheep and we take a step back from that and all we can say to God is what grace what mercy and God we marvel at your pursuit of lost humanity not that we love God but that he loved us jump to verse 9 because verse 9 teaches us how God indeed shows us his love look at it verse 9 In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. I I, I love this verse because John's saying, hey, let me show you exactly how love's demonstrated. Here's what he says. That God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. Let's go phrase by phrase. God sent. Do you see the initiative? Do you see the pursuit that God has for his sheep? God sent. Love starts with God. And God's sending shows us indeed that love, by definition, it's active. It's not passive. This is an action verb. God sends, and it's proof that God's just not giving us words. But who did he send? The next phrase answers it. His only Son. Only means there's not anyone else. That there's something unique about Jesus Christ. 
that no other person, no other created thing, no rock, no tree, no animal could do what he's getting ready to do. It was God's only son. Son teaches us that there is a special relationship between son and father, that there is this relationship of love. His only son, think about it. What this is saying is that God is is taking that which he values most. He's taking his prized possession, his only son, and he's getting ready to send him somewhere. The text answers where? Into the world. The text says God sent his only son into the world this world, that Jesus Christ left heaven to come to earth because we couldn't go to him. I remember 1984. Anyone remember 1984? In 1984, my mom's dad, my grandfather, was getting ready to pass. He was getting ready to die. And we lived in Bristol, Tennessee, and my grandfather was in Asheville, North Carolina, and it was about a two-hour ride. And I was young, but I got in the car with my mom, and I'd, I'd make that trip with her. It was, it wasn't, it, now it's I-26. Back then it was the old 1923 Windy Road. Anyone ever driven that road? Anyone remember that old road through there? So we would go through the, the Sam's Gap Mountain on that windy road. And it was a difficult time for my mom. Her dad was getting ready to, to die. And what I remember about that time in my life is that my mom had an old cassette tape of a gospel singer. His name was Squire Parsons. Anybody ever listen to Squire Parsons? Ah, a few hands. Old gospel singer, Squire Parsons. She'd put that tape in and we'd listen to it all the way from Bristol to Asheville. And Squire Parsons had a song on that tape. And here's the name of the song. He came to me. I was only seven years old. But here's what I heard all the way to Asheville and back. Here's what it said. It said, he came to me. He came to me. When I could not go to where Jesus was, he came to me. And beloved, that's exactly what this text is saying. That God sent his only son into the world. You see, God loves you and he loves me so much that he didn't just come halfway down to where we are. He didn't stop short of our humanity. No, he came all the way down to earth and wrapped himself in this thing we call flesh and blood, humanity, and looked us eye to eye and loved us to the uttermost. That's how much God loves you. That's how much God wants a relationship with you. That he came to you when you couldn't go, when I couldn't go to where he was. He came to us. And the Bible says he came that we might have life. Look at it in verse 9. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus calls this abundant life. 
In chapter 3, verse 16, he calls it everlasting, eternal life. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus says, if you know me as Savior, that's what it means to have eternal life. But we have to point out at this point that yes, Christ comes to give us, give us life, but that's only possible because of his death. Look at verse 10. The last, or the, we'll look at the whole verse, but we're going to focus on the last part. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the what? the propitiation for our sins. We talked about this word a couple weeks ago, propitiation. We found it in chapter 2. Let's be reminded of what that means because propitiation has everything to do with the wrath of God. And in this illustration, you have God, you have the sinner, and you have the Savior. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That means that God's wrath is pointed towards the sinner. As a sinner, we have broken God's law and the wages of our sin is eternal death. And God is getting ready to pour out his wrath upon the sinner. But the picture the Bible gives us is when that's getting ready to happen, the Savior steps in. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is sent to this earth and he steps in our place. And the Bible says that the wrath of God that was aimed at the sinner, it's turned and it's put on the Savior. And the Savior quenches the wrath of God. He satisfies eternal justice forever, and He does that through His death on the cross. Some people are going to tell you that in the Old Testament, God is a God of wrath. In the New Testament, He's a God of love. And that all this wrath just disappears when love comes, that's nowhere in the Bible. Actually, God's love is shown to us not by making wrath just disappear and swept under the rug, but actually having God's wrath turned from the sinner to the Savior. And the Savior receives the wrath of God. He quenches the wrath of God on our behalf. He satisfies divine justice forever through his death on the cross. Beloved, this is our theology. This is how God loved you. He sent his son into the world that we might have life through the propitiation of our sins upon the cross of Christ. This is our theology. This is our vertical relationship. And this is only half of the sermon. Because what a shame it would be to know all this theology and never put it into practice. Because God says in His Word, if your life has been changed by that, if you know this Jesus who, who loved His people, that that's going to have an effect on your life towards other people. That your theology is going to now drive your practice. What does that look like in the Bible? Let's go back and look at it. Look at verse 7 and 11. Verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought, we also ought to love one another. Do you see it? Do you see vertical and horizontal in verse 11? The vertical is God so loved us. The horizontal is we also ought to love one another. You can't have one without the other. So what does that look like practically? The practice of love. First of all, from verse 7. If we know the vertical love of God, verse 7 says, then we know God personally. We don't just know about God, but we actually know God personally. I think one of the reasons John is writing this way, he was dealing with a heresy called Gnosticism. And the Gnostics said, oh, we know everything about God. We can describe it to you. We can, we can tell you about God. Well, John says, well, not only can I tell you about God, but I'll do one better. I know him personally. We have a relationship. You see, that vertical love has so impacted my life, John says, that I know God. That, hey, I can talk to God anytime I want. And if you know God, you can have that relationship too. That's one of the benefits of prayer, of knowing God, having a personal relationship with God. You see, the Christian is not just someone who can tell you the attributes of God, but someone says, hey, I know him personally, relationally. I speak to him all the time. And every day in my practice, I work that out in prayer. But not only do we know God, but there's this command to love one another. This command in verse 11, to love one another. We have another set of scriptures we're going to put on the screen for you. This is John chapter 13, 34 and 35. Daryl kind of made mention of this verse earlier today. This is Jesus speaking. Here's what he says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. According to Jesus, the indispensable mark of a Christian is his love towards other people. It's not what he knows in his head. It's not if he can quote a catechism or tell you the, the details of the Reformed doctrine of predestination. It is the love of the people. We should not miss this. Daryl read from the Gospel of Luke a moment ago. We read the story of the Good Samaritan. What a picture of love. If you remember the story, there's a man, he just gets beaten up, he gets robbed, he gets left for dead on the side of the street. And what happens? The priest walks by. A Levite walks by. Now, why did Jesus pick those two people? Because I think he's saying those two people should have known better. But they just passed right on by. Then a Samaritan comes, and what does he do? He actually gets down in the dirt, doesn't he? Picks up this man, puts him on his horse, carries him to the nearest inn, and says, we need to take care of this man. We need to put wine and oil on this man. Let me pay for his housing. 
And by the way, if he has any other needs, put it on my tab, he says. Jesus says, that's what love is. That's what mercy is. It's getting down on your hands and knees and loving someone whose life has been broken by sin. His sin or someone else's sin. That's what Jesus says. And what we learn about the Samaritan is that love is costly. It's going to cost you something and me something if we love other people. Think about what it costs the Samaritan. It cost him his cleanliness. He had to get dirty. It cost him his time and his plan for the day. Are you a planner? Boy, I am. I like to plan. I like to know what's coming, man. Right? Don't throw me a curveball. I don't like that. Do you think the Samaritan planned to tend to that guy that day? No, he didn't plan it, but it, God brought it to him. He had to let go of his time. He had to let go of his plans, didn't he, to help that guy. It actually cost him money. He paid for the guy's stay at the end and said, if there's anything else, put it on my tab. So it cost him cleanliness, time, his plan cost him money. And the Bible teaches us if we love other people, if we want to be merciful on other people, yes, it is going to cost us something. I think for many of us, including me, I'll get in the, be the first person in this line. We just don't want to give that up. We don't want to give up our cleanliness, our time, our talent, our money our treasure, our plans. Because that benefits us. It, we'd have to give that up to benefit other people. Well, that takes us to our final passage of Scripture. We have one more to look at. You probably know where I'm going. The Scriptures give us a definition of love. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I dare say most people in this church could probably quote this passage from beginning to end. We're going to read it one more time, but I want to ask you to do something. As we read this passage, answer this question. How many of these things focus on me? How many point towards self? Let's look at it together. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Let's go through these kind of one at a time. Before we do that, I'll say, you know, as I read a list like this, it's convicting for me because I know how selfish I am. And God works on my heart just as he would work on anyone else's and says, Adam, are you loving as I've called you to love? Number one, patient. What is patience? Patience is simply a commitment to be long-suffering towards other people. And it's a commitment of time. Kind. Kind is the commitment of being tender-hearted, being thoughtful towards other people. Does not envy. That's a commitment not to be greedy or jealous for what our neighbor has. 
does not boast and is not arrogant. That's a commitment to humility and not pride. It is not rude. That is a commitment to being kind and compassionate. Does not insist on its own way. That's a commitment not to be selfish, but to actually defer to other people. Not irritable or resentful. That's a commitment of being temperate. Being forgetful of past hurts. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. That is a commitment to do things the right way. It bears all things. That's a commitment that our love towards others will be enduring. That it will last forever. It believes all things. That's a commitment to being wise, discerning, knowing God will make our paths straight. It hopes all things. That's a commitment to patiently trust in God's promises. It endures all things. A commitment to persevere to the end. So let's answer the question. How many of these things have to do with us? <laughs> Zero. I was in youth ministry for 15 years, and I would teach my youth this uh, little example as we went through this passage. I would say, put up two fingers. Okay? And I would say, which way does love point? Does it point that way? Or does it point this way? And as we go through this list, never once... Does it point this way? It always points that way. It's always looking to the interest of others. Remember when we talked about the Trinity and this love communion in the Trinity? You see, God is three persons because love never points to self. The Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Spirit. The Son loved the Father. The Spirit loved the Father. You see that love points out. You can never be singular with love. That's why there's three persons in the Trinity. And God says in the Bible that He made us in His image. That means that you and I have a capacity to know God personally and to know other people. And just as God has loved us... We are therefore to take that and love other people. Love, by definition, is relational. Love is going to reach out. Jesus says the mark of discipleship is not knowing all your theology and having it lined up perfectly in order that you can give a, you know, we need to do that. But it's what? Loving other people. It's loving other people, Jesus said, is the true mark of being a disciple. One commentator said it this way, it doesn't matter, or he says it this way, he goes, love is a matter of doing things for people out of compassion for them, whether or not we feel personal affection for them. You've heard it, I might not like you, but I'm going to love you. So where does this hit the road with us? Where does the rubber hit the road? Husbands, how does this text speak to us? This teaches us, husbands, that we can't just tell our wives that we love them. We have to show them. We have to show them by not being rude, by not insisting on our own way. We have to show them by being committed to a loving, enduring, long-lasting relationship. 
Wives, what does this mean for you? This teaches you that telling your husband that you love him is not good enough. That you're encouraged to show him by not being irritable, not being resentful, but committing to a love that perseveres. Parents, how does this speak to us? It teaches us that telling our children we love them is not good enough. We have to show them by being patient and kind. Church of the living God, how does this text speak to all of us? It teaches us that telling this world we love them, it's not enough. We have to show them, just like the Good Samaritan did, which means it's going to be costly to us. We're going to have to give up things like cleanliness and time, money and plans. But this is the way we are to love the world. Why? Because theology drives practice. What we know about God determines the way we live our lives. Vertical drives horizontal, and that's the Bible. And for we as Christians to know so much theology and not to live it out in practice, it's an unbiblical way to live. Paul said it this way, I can speak in tongues of I, I can speak in tongues of angels, but if I have not love, I'm a noisy gong, I'm a clanging cymbal. So as we conclude this morning, beloved, let's remember that vertical relationship. Let's remember how God loved us. He sent his only son into the world that we might have life. But that life came only through the death of the Son of God, that Christ is our propitiation. And if God has so loved us, let us go out and love one another. Our vertical relationship must drive our horizontal relationship. Theology must work itself out in practice. And according to verse 12, look at that last verse of the text. We'll close with this. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Pray with me. God, forgive.